Good evening and welcome here tonight to the first of a series that 5 by 15 is doing with the wonderful Kew Gardens. We couldn't be happier to have this partnership and to be setting off on a series of talks about such important issues. Um, Kew, as I think probably all of you know, is not just an amazing place to go and see flowers and trees and have a wonderful walk in one of the most wonderful gardens in the world. It is also a really cutting edge and leading center of science that looks at the biodiversity that is around us, how that biodiversity is being threatened. It has an extraordinary um, seed and plant collection at Wakehurst in Sussex. All of the people who run these we're going to be hearing from in this series. And it also is an absolute champion of looking at what's happening with the climate crisis and how that is changing the fauna and the, the flora essentially of the world around us and what we can do. Q works in places across the world, um, but in particular, obviously, it works here in the UK. And it's a fantastic institution, which we are all really, really proud of. So these events that we're going to be doing are going to try and look at some of the most vital aspects of our ecosystems from the food. This is tonight, the food we grow and the food we eat. And then next month, we're going to be looking at trees and forests with the wonderful Professor Suzanne Simard, who's the author of The Mother Tree and also the recipient of this year's Q medal, medal as well as other leading authorities, including the Ed Eikin, who manages Q's Wakehurst site. And then in June, you're all going to be invited to a special live event, and we don't do that many, as you know, but we're going to be on the 21st of June, Midsummer's Night. We're going to do five incredible talks in the temperate house. Everyone's going to have access to spend the evening in the gardens and talk to all the people and the scientists at Kew. And that will be hosted with me along with Alexander Antonelli, who is head of science at Kew and who's an absolutely wonderful guy who's written a terrific book, which we'll be talking about on the night. But without further ado, what we're going to look at tonight is food, which is a subject that's very dear to my heart. And I declare right now that Anna Taylor, who's speaking here, who's head of the Food Foundation, is not only a pal of mine, a really good pal, but I'm also a trustee of the Food Foundation, and I'm very proud to be that. It's a brilliant organization. But what we're going to be looking at tonight is some of the very new developments and the beneficial things that we can learn from plant scientists, but also what about are the sustainable alternatives? What should we be eating? So we're going to touch on beans, we're going to touch on potatoes, Anna's going to be touching on our food systems. And so I hope by the end of it, you'll have a good picture of what's going on. As always with these events, our speakers are going to have about five minutes each to talk, then we'll talk among ourselves. And then please stick your questions into the Q&A box and we'll come to as many as we can and I'm sure that lots of you will have questions for us. Um, lots of our, our speakers also have books and we'll be putting all the details of those in the uh, chat box so please look them up and please get them. So with no further ado because we've got lots to get through I'm really happy to introduce our first speaker tonight, Sarah Langford. Sarah was a, a lawyer, she was an author, and she not only did all that for a long time, but she also managed to write a best-selling book called In Your Defense, Stories of Life and Law. But then after doing that, she moved on and took over uh, her husband's smallish farm, I don't know how small, in Suffolk, and she wrote a fantastic book called Rooted, How Regenerative Farming Can Change the World. And this book has done really well. Sarah's spoken all over the country at festivals and she's absolutely part of the really vital new movement to look at 
you know, agriculture accounts for probably around about 30% of our carbon emissions. It's 75% of our biodiversity loss. We have to change it. People like Sarah are leading the way. So please, thank you so much for coming and joining us. And I hand over to you. Thanks, Rosie. That was a hell of an introduction. I hope I live up to it. Um, and uh, yes, you're right. I did not expect um, for this path to be the one that I went down because for the majority of my adult life, I have been a criminal and family barrister. Uh, I represented mostly defendants and parents whose children were removed by the state. And I lived in the city and uh, went all over the country to other cities. And then I did a really foolish thing if you're a court-based barrister, which is to have um, babies, two of them. And it was while I was on maternity leave that I wrote my first book, In Your Defence, which was a narrative nonfiction account of the world that I had been living in, which seemed completely misportrayed by the majority of people I met. So I wanted to make it three-dimensional. And while I was writing that, in 2017, my husband lost his job and we decided to move to the edge of a field in Suffolk. Uh, that field was part of a small farm, which is about 180 acres of arable and about 40 acres of pasture. And we asked in the kind of incredible naivety that is born out of optimistic naivety that's born out of total ignorance if we could <laughs> take on the management of that farm and tripped and fell down this rabbit hole of learning at exactly the same time that farming in Britain was about to radically change because of the withdrawal of subsidies and a transition from uh, common agricultural payments to public money for public good and so I found myself with what turned out to be quite a fundamental question, which is what should we do with this farm? What is right to do with this farm? And I realized that I couldn't answer that. I couldn't answer a question about the future of food without looking at the past and its history. And I realized that within my own family, I sort of had the parable of modern farming. My grandparents on the other side of the country in Hampshire had taken on their first tenancy just five years after wartime rationing ended and that farm was one that was deeply embedded in my childhood my dad had gone to Sirencester which is where I am now doing a graduate diploma in agriculture 40 years ago to become a land agent my uncle had taken on the farm in the 80s that world was infused within my childhood but I hadn't really had a connection with it for the whole of my adult life and so I realized whilst kind of trying to find out what we should do with our farm and trying to find out why in my own family, my grandfather had been a hero feeding a nation made hungry by war. And my uncle then perceived himself really, or he thought he was perceived rather as a villain for destroying um, all the resources of the world that you've mentioned already. I wondered how quickly we got to that transition and where we were going next. And so I met off, met many farmers who were doing this quiet revolution. Some had a big profile, some did not at all. And so when my literary agent asked me to um, finish my proposal for my next book, which she hoped would be a kind of 
best-selling series of crime fiction novels because that would be an obvious thing for barristers to do I had to persuade her that in fact I wanted to write about farming and so that uh, book became Rooted which is I suppose the story of the huge changes that are happening in agriculture in Britain at the moment which I think could be a blueprint for how farming might be done in the future and my own story of moving from an urbanite to someone who still kind of straddles both the urban and countryside divide and that's the story really within rooted thank you so much that sorry i okay thank you sorry about that thank you thank sorry. you so much sarah that that's um wonderful and i've i've read your book and i know how it it takes you through the story of farming and you know the fact is that we're all on the verge of a precipice with this i think you know you mentioned elms and i'm sure we might come back to that later the the new types of subsidies it's changing everything so we'll come back to a lot of that when we get to questions i'm sure but now i'm absolutely thrilled to introduce helena dove who is a botanical horticulturalist. She manages edible science, Kew's Kitchen Garden. And she has trained in other large walled gardens and she knows a lot about old vegetables, new vegetables, and what we need to know about and remember about heritage vegetables. And also some unusual crops that may not immediately strike you as things that are good to eat. So she has just also written a book called The Botany of, a Kitchen, of the Kitchen Garden, The Science and Horticulture of Our Favourite Crops. And that's been published by Q Books. Tonight she's going to talk about alternative staples, although I know because I've seen her slides that potatoes are on this particular menu. Over to you, Helena. Great. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to share my slides. But while I do that, I'll tell you quickly that I managed the kitchen garden at Q. Um, and part of what the joy is of the kitchen garden in Kew is that because unlike farmers, we don't have to make a profit from what we grow. I can experiment with what I grow. Sorry, I'm just uh, trying to share my screen. Uh, there we go. So one of the things I've been looking at is what, how the climate is, the changing climate is affecting the crops we grow. And can we grow something else to help diversify what we're growing? So the reason I'm looking at the potato is it is a staple crop. Um, and it's a, it's a crop that everyone engages with. You know, I don't know many people that don't like a chip butty or, you know, packet of crisps. So it's a really good engagement tool. So the potato it is a staple. We know we've had issues with it in the past where um, it's all gone a bit wrong and people have really not coped very well with the lack of potato. Now, it's not... At, complete danger point but it is becoming harder to grow and the reason for that is climate change climate change in my definition is these weather events it's becoming very unpredictable and when things happen they happen hard so it's been really wet this spring and not very warm last summer it was really hot and very dry we're not getting sort of averages we're getting records it's always a record month for something or other how this affects potatoes in two ways depending on the summer if it's a wet, hot summer, we get a lot of blight. Blight is a horrible, horrible disease that does this to, well, that's a potato crop, a tomato crop for anyone that spotted it, but it, it basically overnight just ruins your crop. Um, it's a sort of a, it's like a, a bit like a fungal disease, but not quite, and it needs water to breathe. And as soon as it gets water and about 24 degrees, it just turns everything into a really mushy, horrible mess. And if you're a kitchen gardener like me, who works Monday to Friday, 
it will always hit on a Friday. So you always have to stay until about 10 o'clock at night removing all the foliage. It's disgusting. If you're a farmer, this is a big, big problem. If you've got fields full of potatoes or tomatoes. The other thing that can happen is if we have a dry summer, it's a thing called scab, which makes the potatoes have these horrible little scabs on them. They're entirely edible, but no one wants to buy a scabby potato. So the potato is becoming harder to kind of produce that perfect potato that you want to buy in the shops. So the question really for me is what can we grow instead of the potato if it ever comes to it? So we've been experimenting with a few things. Um, a lot of the time we look back to where the potato came from, which was the Andes. And when it was grown there, they never grew just the potato. They never relied on one crop. They were not like we do here, which is big monoculture. They were polycultures. So we looked at a few things that were growing alongside them that might grow in this country. Excuse me. So these are two of my favourite crops that work as a replacement for the potato or an alternate crop. Um, what we're looking for in an alternate crop is a starchy crop, so something that can give us that kind of staple food, but also something that stores, and that's quite hard. The potato will store for the entirety of winter, um, and that's actually been one of the points I've been struggling with, is things will last for maybe a two or three months, but getting them through to March, April time hasn't been easy. The big white one on this picture is called Mashua. Um, it's a climbing nasturtium. It's got a big root on it. It's kind of a mustardy flavor and that stores really well and grows really, really well in this country. And it's also got edible leaves, which double hitter. Um, I'm always, if you can eat as much of the plant as possible, it's the best use of space possible. And the little pink one is called an ochre or an oxalis tuberosus. Now that's been grown in this country for years and there's actually a guild of ochre breeders in the UK. And we're working to get them bigger and bigger because they are quite little at the minute. Um, the reason we need to start this work now is it takes years to breed plants to be suitable for our climate. And we also need to find out what works and what doesn't. Um, other things you could have a go with, that the more unusual things, as uh, Rosie said, aren't necessarily things you think about eating, but dahlia tubers, entirely edible. Um, canna tubers, the bottom of a canna, entirely edible. Not incredibly tasty, I'll warn you of that now, but we're super lucky in this country. We eat for flavour. Um, if there's ever a famine, we might be really glad that we can eat those dahlia tubers. So that's kind of a really quick summation of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to see what else we could grow because we need to diversify what we grow so that if it's a really hot summer, the ochre, the mashua, they'll do really well. If it's a bit cooler, the potato will do really well, but we're not reliant on one thing. And that's a bit of an issue with our food growing system is we're very reliant on one staple or you know potatoes and wheat that's pretty much what we rely on in this country and um they might not be sustainable for the for the long term so we're just starting this process now of seeing what we can grow and it's really exciting and things go really really wrong but that's just the learning curve and there's no point hiding all what goes wrong so if you ever come to queue in the kitchen garden we have a handwritten board that say this didn't work and this didn't work and this is why and it's a great conversation to be part of so yeah, so that's roughly what we're doing. But if you ever want to come over and have a look at the kitchen garden, please do. <laughs> I'll just try and stop sharing the screen, which probably is easier said than done. There you go. <laughs> oh, Helena, thank you so much. You have a wonderful job. I mean, I was just sitting here thinking, 
God, what a great job to have. That is so brilliant. And uh, I've written down both the Mashua and the Oka, and I think maybe we could put that info in the chat box because it'll be really fun for everyone to try. And of course, you know, we have lived through, well, not lived through, the Irish lived through a potato famine. So we do know, we do have history to know that we are vulnerable if we only grow one thing. It's not, it's not news to... No, it's something we learned from the past, isn't it, really? <laughs> I know. And just let's hope we learn now in the future. Now, I'm really pleased to introduce Anna. As I said in the introduction, I'm a trustee of the Food Foundation, which Anna runs. The Food Foundation uh, looks at everything to do with how we eat, the food policy, especially food insecurity and obesity and the problems that people have with their diet. Anna was also the chief independent advisor on Henry Dimbleby's food strategy. Um, she was given an OBE 2014, very well deserved for her services to addressing the global burden of disease. So Anna, over to you and thanks so much for making the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. Um, so just so you you all know, um, in case you've not come across the Food Foundation, what we try to do is change the food system to make it easier for everyone to eat a healthy and sustainable diet, particularly if you're on a low income. And so what I thought I'd start by doing is just very briefly explaining how we're eating now to then move on to say what are the kind of future foods that might be coming um, and what are the implications of them. So um so here I'm looking at the UK and the sort of average statistics across the country. So at the moment, we're eating about 50 to 60 percent of our calories are coming from what we call ultra processed foods. So these foods which have gone through multiple processes in their production, they're often highly refined, um, very palatable. We often eat more of them than uh, we need to. They don't suppress our appetite very well and they're not good for our health. Um, We've got a situation where a third of children are eating less than a portion of veg a day. So we've got really a real problem with um, fruit and veg consumption. And that's particularly um, problematic if you've not got a lot of money. Um, and at the moment, um, we've got rising levels of food insecurity. So people struggling to put food on the table. Um, and if you're uh, um, the system at the moment produces calories, which are unhealthy calories are three times um, cheaper than than healthy calories. So if you're on a low income, <clears throat> the odds are stacked against you in terms of being able to secure a diet which protects your, your health. And we buy 95% of the food that we eat at home, we buy from 10 supermarkets. Um, if you don't, and, and if you're eating out of the home, we've, got, we've obviously seen a huge growth in the online delivery platforms, Just Eat, Deliveroo, Uber Eats, and that being a kind of channel through which people are purchasing the food that they're eating out of the, uh, that, that they're not preparing at home. Um, that's sort of the majority picture. If you're not eating like that, you are in a very, very small minority. Um, so that's the sort of context for thinking then about, well, how might we shift our diets um, in favour of um, a more planet-friendly diet or a diet which protects our health. Um, and probably the biggest area where we're likely to see the biggest changes in the coming years is around meat consumption because the growing recognition of the environmental impact of meat consumption. Here in Britain, on average, we eat 97 kilograms of meat per person per year whereas the, the world average is 63 kilograms. So we're eating well above the global average. Um, 
And of course, meat can, uh, eating meat um, takes up a lot of land, both through grazing animals and also producing the feed which feeds animals. So 77% of farmed land globally is dedicated to animal rearing or feed. And 85% of farmland in Britain is, is for, for grazing or animal feed. So the potential for cutting down our meat consumption is that we free up a lot of that land to think about how it can be used to um, halt the huge degradation of biodiversity that we've been seeing um, and also invest potentially in carbon capture. Um, uh, and of course, you get some of the co-benefits then also of methane reduction and potentially health benefits. But at the moment, about half of the meat that we eat is in processed form. So that's, you know, sausages, sausage rolls, meat pies, filled pasta, whatever that all of that kind of thing. And there's a huge now um, investment going into alternative proteins, which are going to have much smaller carbon impact really deal with that land challenge and also methane issues and coming up with products which are going to quite easily replace meat in those processed foods in particular because we're not really likely to notice it as much obviously it's different if you're having a steak but if you're eating meat in a sausage roll you're less likely to kind of notice some of those that that switch that will be happening increasingly as soon as the price points of those alternative proteins come down and which they're doing doing very rapidly. I think the challenge from, from a sort of health perspective is that does that represent to some extent a bit of a missed opportunity for getting people to move from more meat towards more vegetables and pulses and therefore get some of those co-benefits of having more fiber and vitamins and minerals that we all need desperately to protect our health because at the moment, uh, diet-related disease is the number one problem which the NHS is facing and we're all experiencing as we as we get older. So that's the big sort of ch uh, challenge with this transition. Which way, which way are we going to go and how can we help people to get a carbon reduction in their diet and, and some of those health benefits? And then so the challenge overall is how do we actually then reshape the incentives in the system to allow that to happen? And how can we ensure that all the great work that's happening on a very small scale in small farms in Britain, which are really moving into agroecological farming, how can we make sure they have an opportunity to flourish and grow to a bigger scale and take over some of the um, uh, uh, re rebalance the system a little bit so that it's less dominated by these huge kind of commercial incentives that we have at the moment. Thanks. Oh, Anna, thank you. That was a real tour de force through so many different things. And uh, gosh, you throw up so many, so many thoughts about, you know, who's going to own this new food world? Is it going to be healthy? Is it going to be like uh, using a Zempic to get thinner instead of changing the food system and all, all those things, which hopefully we can have time to come on to in, in a few minutes. But thank you very much for that. Now, our last speaker tonight is the wonderful Kasper Chater, who is a plant scientist and his research aims to improve crop resilience. And he really, really works on 
all the issues that come up about climate change. He particularly focuses on beans. And in fact, he is on the advisory board for something called Beans is How, which I had never heard of, but I think is obviously an extremely good thing, Casper. So he coordinates funded research projects in collaboration with the University of Mexico, University of Sheffield, works across the world. And he's going to talk to us, I hope, about how beans can create a much more sustainable future. Casper, over to you. And by the way, please, everybody, get your questions coming in because we're going to be coming to them in about 10 minutes or so. Cheers. Thanks so much, Rosie. Can you hear me all right? Yes. So Anna has beautifully introduced a lot of the uh, topics that uh, I, I'm going to draw on here. And what we have is a system whereby we import pretty much all our protein from whether it's outside the EU or from within the EU into the UK, either in the form of soya or in the form of meat that has itself fed on soya. So soya is really the key protein that drives the meat industry, particularly in terms of um, beef production and uh, poultry. So soya, of course, is a legume crop. And I can't, uh, I can't stress the importance of soya and the health benefits of eating soya alone. Um, but when it comes to the use of soya for, for production of meat, this is where uh, there have become huge strains on our system. So I am only one of several hundred scientists working at Kew uh, across a range of um, topics, uh, areas of research. And I'm from the Crops and Global Change team uh, that's part of the Trait Diversity and Function uh, Department. And our interest is in using diversity that we have in the crops and crop wild relatives uh, to enhance and improve people's livelihoods and our response and resilience to climate change. So when it comes to legume crops, our reliance on soya is really our dependence on animal protein. And if we reduce that dependence on animal protein, as we are starting to see slowly in, in, the, uh, in the market, in the supply chain, we have to replace that soya with something else. And what that something else has to be, I think, is beans and pulses, other beans and pulses. So soya is great, soya tastes great, and that's why people eat it. But it's also really, really cheap because it is grown on vast swathes of land um, and imported en masse to, to feed a cheap meat supply. But the consequences of this are dire. So this is a photo here uh, showing this kind of monoculture whereby we strip away what is probably primary rainforest and cerrado uh, to, to form monocultures of soy, which then unfortunately is, is left to market forces to determine what grows next. So we really need to diversify our diets, uh, particularly in terms of which beans and which pulses we eat. 
And that's for our own health and it's for the health of the planet. So how do we do this? Well, there are so many options. There are so many beautiful, tasty, delicious recipes for all sorts of beans that we have available in our supermarkets and our markets across, across the UK. And I'm part of uh, the Beans is How campaign. I'm an advisor to it. And as part that campaign is a, an ambitious campaign that is trying to double bean consumption across the planet for the benefit of human health and planetary health over the coming years. And by feeding ourselves on nutritious uh, protein, bean-based proteins, legume crops, as in pulses um, and other legumes, these are a way that we can both fortify our soils and improve uh, soil health in the long term, but also our microbiomes in our guts and our health in old age. And on that note, I will uh, I will cut short. Casper, thank you, thank you very much indeed. That was um, that was terrifically interesting, and I, I, so. And we'd like to um, take your question immediately in a way to your, where you ended, I mean, in saying that we should all transfer to eating um, beans and such like stuff. Is there, Sarah, if you were to, uh, I think we need everybody's, uh, Sarah, I mean, would that, does that make any sense to you as a farmer? I mean, two points in a way to pick up with you. One is about meat, obviously, and I don't know, you know, whether whether that, the reduction that's necessary, but how would you make money out of growing beans? We have an organic farm, which means mm -hmm. that we have to get our fertility through non-synthetic means. And we do use animals to, for doing that, but we also use legumes like beans. In fact, they are a critical part of our rotation. And I think what is really interesting and exciting as some of the farmers that I have both seen and hearing about is how they're using beans mixed up rather than as a block. Mm -hmm. So in terms of there is uh, ample room in the growing of it because you can mix something called bicropping or companion cropping where you grow beans and wheat together, for example, and for reasons that no one can yet explain they both seem to ripen at the same time whereas if they were grown apart they would ripen at separate times and then you sieve them to separate them so they both like all farming systems be better in a diversity than the monoculture in terms of the supply chain that's i mean that's exactly why casper's got the job he's got i imagine to try and wean us off our you know uh, a diet which is very poor in some of the pulses and legumes that we we, we should be eating and um, I, as I understand it, historically did. Yes, um, so just just staying with you, because you, you, know, you mentioned the fact that we're in the middle of an agricultural transition and we're moving from a single farm payment, which just paid you for your acreage to now paying you for what your benefits you're doing to the climate. How is that working out for you? <laughs> in a nutshell. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the public sector in one form or another for the whole of my career, so I'm very used to filling out forms, but this is, uh, the admin of this is a whole new level. I mean, I, uh, as you know, Rita, because you've been keeping up to speed with it, the government have slowly been releasing the sustainable farming incentive 
options. And I can understand in part why, because they want to test they want to test it before just committing to it. But we have a five-year rotation, probably a six-year rotation. So we need to know what's coming up and what options we can be part of. So there has been general sort of disquiet, I think, on two levels. One is a lack of transparency about where we're going. And the second is the levels that that funding will be set at. Um, so cover cropping, for example, which is something which is a, I'd say is a really easy win for farming. You plant, after you harvest, you plant a mixture of species. They serve multiple purposes, invigorating the biology, keeping water in the ground over winter so it doesn't sluice off into the rivers. There has a, um, there's a multiple levels of biodiversity gain in that. But the payment for it is really done on an income foregone basis. So it's to cover your costs and uh, that's with a little bit of excess, more or less it. So uh, in terms of where we are on that at the moment, um, I'm worried that the uptake won't be enough because although I know Anna said, you know, that at the moment we are dominated by huge commercial incentives, but at the moment that is the incentive. Mm. This has to pay for, it has to be enough to pay farmers to change. And the private market is very exciting, but it still hasn't got enough faith and confidence around it. I think probably both ends to really kickstart it with the speed it needs to be kickstarted. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, Anna, I'm going to bring that straight back to you because you worked so closely on the food strategy. And obviously the questions Sarah raises are, are enormous about whether this transition can work. And, and I suppose a lot, you know, a lot of the points you raised, I get worried that we're going to end up with the sort of Amazon, Google and Netflix of the new alt food world, if we're not careful, because the, the money in it is so huge. Yeah, and I think so getting the, the regulatory frameworks in place around these foods, I think is going to be really, really important. Um, I think what's exciting, though, about, and I think you alluded to this, Sarah, in your opening comments about um, ELMS, is that the sort of vision is, the vision is is right. And, and what's interesting is really thinking about using subsidies to, to re-incent, to, to, to incentivize farmers differently and to create these environmental outcomes that we desperately need. And I think uh, we need to apply the same logic to other parts of the food system and think about what are the uh, taxes and subsidies that need to operate in other parts of the supply chain to really um, shift the, the demand at the, at the kind of consumer end. And so how do we, what is that mix of things that need to happen in order to create that unhealthy, healthy calories um, price differential to narrow and start to switch so that it actually is um, the cheapest for people to eat um, a really healthy and sustainable diet. Um, so I think that it's a really important step in the right direction. The Elms work is, I, there are some concerns about, I think, um, the alternative meats, but I think overall it's it really is going to help hugely in terms of uh, carbon and and land potentially and I think there's a, there's a question in the in the comment in the questions about um organic pasture fed mm. red meat in Britain and I think 
I think the real opportunity is, as I said, is around the huge amount of processed meat that we eat, which is often imported. And if we can cut down our consumption of some of those processed foods and the meat that is contained within them, we'll make a really big, big step towards the climate change uh, targets, uh, sorry, the climate change committee targets of reducing our meat consumption by 30%. Because we eat so much meat in that form. So, and then that means that when we're really eating meat, like meat that's not in a processed form, we can eat the wonderful products, which, you know, some of these farmers are producing um, and potentially spend a little bit more on those. And and uh, so sh shift that sort of less and better meat, really, being the narrative. Yeah, no, thank you. That, that makes good sense. Um, Helena, in terms of the types of vegetables that you're growing, I mean, how much do you think that you know, we can we can get to be self-sufficient in this country in terms of our vegetables, because right now we import a lot. And so in a way we, you know, we do therefore export our, some of our carbon, we export our need of water, it's extremely unfair. And our industries, horticulture has, has declined. How do we boot it up again with all the new things that you're doing? I think, I mean, it's a big, it's, everyone needs to be involved. The biggest people that I've found that help promote the crops that I'm growing are actually chefs. And if you can get a chef to say how to eat the ochre or the mashua or even the beans, I mean, I'm not going to repeat what Casper said, but I'm a big fan of beans. And what we don't do in this country really is dry our beans. You know, we're very much into chickpeas and all these things, but dry uh, broad beans or fava beans, they're great. They're full of protein. They're really easy to dry over the summer. But we almost need someone to say, you know, let's grow let's make hummus out of these beans instead. Mm -hmm. um, so it is about this communication and I can tell people how to grow them, but it, you do need someone else to tell people how to eat them. And once that conversation gets out, I made a joke ages ago, but if someone could make like turnips on toast as sexy as avocado on toast, we're gonna be fine. But it is about getting that kind of side of it, I think. I think it's about, if I give you a turnip, most people just, boil it or I turn it into coleslaw what do you do with it what's the next step and it's that access into how we use our vegetables I think you know that is probably a really good step forward is getting those conversations started someone sent in a question here Jane Southering saying can you describe the flavor of mashua and ochre yeah mashua is it's in the cabbage family basically just really love out of it now so it's it's kind of mustardy so it's I really like the flavor it's great on a Sunday roast and ochre's lemony, so it's an oxalis, which if you ever trade oxalis leaves, they're really lemony and they've got oxalic acid in them. And it's a really interesting flavour. It goes really well with sort of summer salads and things like that, but they don't taste like the potato. So we're kind of missing that, but they're really interesting. And again, you've just got to get the message out there to try them. It's why small, uh, small farmers who can interact with their public directly, who can say, try this ochre, try this mashua, this is what it tastes like, this is what you need to expect. Um, and why having the recipes for how to cook them are really important. So everyone needs to be involved in the conversation so that we can share the knowledge and, and help people use these crops. So, Casper, we have a very, um, seems to me, a very, very limited knowledge of beans. I mean, it is, it's sort of ridiculous to say, but it's kind of beans means heights. And, and, you know, if you ask people about beans, they just say, well, there's those beans in tomato sauce. And probably for most people in this country, that is their connection to beans. Um, how do we change that? I mean, there's also people asking questions about soy, which, of course, I, I realized when you were talking, I don't even really think of soy as a bean, but of course it is a bean. 
And and why why has so what what is it about soy? One question that has made it so world dominant. Why is it so particularly extraordinary? To answer your last question first, it's the protein. So it's the it's not just the amount of protein, but it's the composition of the amino acids in that protein that is so crucial to building muscle, to build our muscle and to build animal muscle. Right. Um, so it makes a very good, uh, very good protein. But there are other equivalent uh, beans that have similar uh, types of protein and amounts of protein. So it's, it's special, but it ain't that special. And we can really get a lot from peas, right? Mm -hmm. Peas are very high quality protein. We put them in our back garden very easily. Um, and, and they're really cheap a lot of the time. So, so yes, there's, there's very easy answers, um, but the scale of production uh, is, is a big uh, undertaking to change. So the scale of, of, of uh, soy production is obviously vast, right? You've got huge swathes of South America. You've got a lot of Asia producing uh, soy, um, and that there's there's no other legume that that's comparable there. So, when it comes to the image issue of beans, and and all we know about beans is is uh, is baked beans. Well, yeah, that's that's very true. Um, but I think it's an easy one to shift. Uh, Helena mentioned hummus. Yes, hummus is a delicious thing, and it's it's. I think many many people can connect with it uh, in this country, uh, even even though you know maybe fifty years ago it was very 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 unknown on people's tables. Uh, but I think in most fridges and picnics you might you might find it now. Mm. Uh, so. It's, it's really changing what people's mindset is about what a bean is um, and, and what, what, what we can get from them. Okay, so I, I'm just going to stick on the question of soy here because there's a question from Francis Rubin about can someone clarify, understand there's a difference between soya used in tofu, for example, and the soya being used for animal feed? And what are the re repercussions? Should soy be fermented for human consumption? So, yes, tofu, tofu is fermented, um, and lots of our lots of our foods are naturally fermented, and we've been using fermentation to change the properties of our our foods and access different uh, beneficial parts of that food. So it does change the nature of the food and the digestibility. But soybeans are still digestible, um, and we can. Know, eat edamame, fresh, yeah. delicious green uh, soy uh, out of the pod, and, and get a lot from them. So I wouldn't say it's it's essential. It's nowhere near essential. It's just another way of, of processing. Um, question here from Barbara Munro about um, eating a Mediterranean diet, mostly vegetables and legumes, and a bit of meat and oily fish. They lost weight and they didn't feel the price rises so intensely. I mean, Anna, I think I know what your answer to that would be. Um, 
this is just a good diet. Yeah, that's right. That's what the epidemiology shows. It's a really good diet. Um, and good to hear that you didn't feel the price effects um, quite as much. Um, I'm I'm surprised, actually, because looking at the that certainly what we're seeing across the population is that the cost of living has meant that people on a very low income have really reporting much lower uh, purchases of, of fruit and vegetables, for example, which obviously a kind of mainstay of a Medita Mediterranean diet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, but unfortunately, the statistics show that we're just such a long way from that being a kind of normal way of eating across the whole population. Um, and price has a big, as a big part to, to play in that. But also I think, um, I think at the moment, I, I don't think at the moment, the way that we sell fruits and vegetables to people is particularly inspiring. Um, I mean, Rosie and I have worked together on a, um, a campaign aimed at um, getting children to get more excited about eating vegetables and think about vegetables as fun. This is the Veg Power campaign. It was on ITV. And I think we learned a huge amount there about how the sort of image of veg, and I think that 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 is inculcated in our children from an early age um that this this is not a, a food that's about pleasure it's a food that's about punishment really and i think changing that whole image goes alongside some of those things around price which are so important and i think again i don't think that supermarkets are the best yeah. places to sell us this stuff i think you know if you go into a farm shop you can kind of get more excited about eating things the different vegetables that are on offer than than if it's all sitting under plastic somewhere. Agreed. I don't think anyone would disagree, and I don't think anyone would disagree that if you have the impetus and the wherewithal to have a Mediterranean diet, that probably your food is nicer, and you probably really kind of like food in a different way. But there's an interesting kind of exchange here with John Seisel saying, you know, that all these improvements, reducing meat, uh, et cetera, um, they're dependent on difficult, maybe impossible, to change cultural habits. And in a sense, aren't we focusing a lot, which is what I mean, I do, you do, on you know, wonderful, interesting, small scale innovations he describes it as fiddling while Rome burns. Um, Sarah, you, you know, you, you're a farmer trying to produce food for all of us to eat. It must get you down that you see what actually goes through the supermarket checkout. Yeah, I mean, in a funny way, there's a, there's a parallel with, um, I can't remember his name's point, but, and what I wanted to say about the farming side of it as well, which is that it does, it can feel a lot like fiddling around the edges of Rome Burns because it's, and, and I said, this is a mother of two small kids who's very keen on getting her kids to eat properly, but you are losing a battle from the moment you walk into a supermarket. There's no way, I don't think that any of us, despite our will, are gonna win against the monopoly of the uh, supermarket cartel and the people who've got huge dominance in this space. And I say that as a producer, because one of the huge transitions that you make when you convert from a conventional farm to an organic farm is how you sell your product. Because when we were growing a rotation of wheat, barley, oilseed, rape, we didn't even have to think about our end consumer. A big lorry came, picked it up, and it got dumped on a global pile. And then we were, we might have done some kind of trading around, you know, what price we would have got for it within a certain range. 
no other product works like that. You wouldn't make a T-shirt without thinking about who's going to wear it, how much you're going to sell it for, who you're going to market it to. When you are an organic farm or any kind of um, grower of niche products, like lovely John Pawsey is growing Chia and Suffolk or people who are growing for the brilliant Hobmadods who are trying to get all of these pulses and beans and legumes back into our diet, it is so much harder. You've got to either grow it on a contract, grow it and then try and sell it um, into the market, depending on what it's going to be like that particular growing season. So it's, of course, the aims and ambitions of all this are laudable and worthwhile. And as Henry Dimbleby says, you know, it's not if, but when this has to change. Business as usual cannot continue on either a health or an environmental stance. But it's very difficult to see how, unless the structural changes are, structural changes are made, even producers are going to find a way for all these products to get into the market. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's quite a lot of questions, in fact, coming in now about supermarkets. You know, one thing being, why can't they diversify what they sell? Um, that definitely they, here's one from someone saying, it looks as if most vegan foods are deep fried or ultra processed or both. Um, Helena, do you have any views on how you should challenge the supermarkets to become more diverse and less, so that we can do more of what Sarah's talking about? I mean, it's a mass, it's a massive conversation and they are part of it. They have to be part of it. Um, you grew, I grew up on a fairly low income family, like supermarkets where you go to get your cheap food. They are, there are some supermarkets that are diversifying in very small ways, but it's, it's, I don't think it's something I have the answer for, but I think if they've got the offering and often when they offer something a bit different, it comes with a high price point, that's an issue. Um, I'd also just like to see them offering more seasonal vegetables and making it really, really clear, not just, I don't think it's clear. And I think if we have a more seasonal diet, it does help. Um, you know, there's obviously this thing with, I think it's peppers at the minute. We shouldn't be eating peppers in April. Not really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but in the same breath, I don't feel we should just remove ourselves from these countries where we set up all these kind of contracts and ask people to turn their land over. So the supermarkets are involved. And I think if they highlighted it was from the UK, maybe where it's from. And I know these are sort of happening on really small scale, but you're right. I think we've talked a lot about vegan foods and you see a lot of people in the vegan food aisle, the processed food aisle going, well, this is healthy for me. And I'm standing in the veg section going, no, this is healthy. And actually it's way cheaper and there's way more calories and there's way more nutrition in this aisle. And I mean, I don't think I've got the answer and I wish I did. It'd be great. Um, not sure I'd be working in the kitchen garden if I did. But, um, you know, it, it's just more about communicating, but also bringing that price down, I think, yeah. and making it accessible. Um, and, you know, sorry, when it came to the kids, I just wanted to say I have so many kids coming into the kitchen garden. And when they see where it's growing or if they're growing it at home, and I know it's been said a million times, they really are engaged in that process of, growing it and eating it and not everyone has land that's accessible yeah. I understand that but it's really important I think if they understand where it comes from and how it grows and when they can harvest it and strawberries are a treat because they're only really growing in June and July it just changes the way they see it. Um, Casper um, I'm very this is a question that's coming from the audience but also something I'm really interested in where, where do you see the role of uh, GM and genetically engineered foods in the future because we're still going to have to grow some crops on big scales, I assume. 
I mean, however much we have Sarah's farm and, you know, Hodmer Dodds and farm shops, there's still going to be acres of the American Midwest or wherever, Canadian tundra at this rate. Um, is it going to have a role? And how do you see that? that I mean, how do you see that? I see that as two questions. Yeah, it is. Sorry. G no, 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 it's, it's fine. It's just that the GM and you know, genetic engineering and, and precision breeding techniques like gene editing, they don't have to be part and parcel of large scale monoculture. They can be equally part of small scale farming um, and, and can also support um, subsistence farmers. So these are techniques, these are tools that can be used for good or bad. Um, I don't think that they should be discounted uh, and we've been using them for over three decades now and been eating them. For can you give us some examples? Um, so pretty much all the meat in the UK that's fed on soy is, is fed on GM soy. Uh, so, so if you eat meat, you eat GM protein. Um, we've 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 had lots of GM tomatoes um, since the 1980s, I believe, maybe a bit later. So, so these things have been eaten by us, possibly unknowingly, possibly knowingly. Um, and okay, environmental issues and human health issues. There are very few. It's a very different story when you're talking about the pesticides that they use and the tech, the, the kind of um, agronomical uh, effects, like the land management, should I say. Um, they're different, but the tools can be used for good or bad. And I think that that's one thing that the, the public is really realizing now. And this is why uh, the government have been able to address this in the new precision breeding bill, um, that we have to look again at how best to use these tools. Now, in terms of growing on large-scale monoculture, I think that even on large-scale monoculture, we have to rethink. We have to say, okay, this is not a long-term solution for you know, soil health and water health. We, 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 we have to change that, that method of production. And that could be introducing more rotations. It could be introducing intercropping, like Sarah mentioned earlier. There are lots of methods that will help us maintain or increase that kind of sustainable intensification of agriculture that's required to produce the food that we need as a growing human population. Anna, what, what was the kind of food strategies and thought about um, how you have sustainable mixed agriculture that also pays farmers enough and makes a food system go round and, and, and gets rid of the kind of the factory, the factories of wheat that we have right now. Well, I think for the for the UK, the model was what we called the sort of three compartmental model. So where you basically have small and large farms coexisting alongside one another but a better balance of them and and using the land judiciously to um 
promote biodiversity as well as ensure a sort of base level of, of food security. So it was definitely a kind of mixed mixed model approach um, that was promoted. Um, and I think you know the uh, the Elms scheme should should be in line with that, those overall outcomes. So I think, you know, that, that I, there's not a kind of major disconnect, I don't think, in terms of that ambition and the policy frameworks which are being developed. Um, changing, changing the subject, and I don't know quite who wants to pick this up, but it intrigues me, a question here about saying, when richer nations go for a superfood and it becomes a fashion, how does this affect poorer nations where the food is a basic? For example, quinoa. Um, and chia seeds, I think, as well, and avocados. And we all kind of know that they're causing great environmental and human human damage. Um, Helena, you want to pick that one up? I mean, I just want to get an answer in a conversation about this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, all vegetables are superfoods. Um, it just depends who's marketing them that moment. And it's very clever, um, you know. I think one of my fears is that, you know, there are lots of countries that have turned themselves over to these massive monocultures to feed Western countries. And if we just suddenly go, that's it, we're out. Like, what do they do? They've got to have time to go back to the way they used to farm. So it's not a case of just eradicating it. But I think that, like, yeah, I'm mean, kale. I love kale. It grows really, really well in, the in this country. It grows all year round and it is a superfood. All the beans that we've talked about, they're all super, they're all amazing. They've got so much in them. So maybe we just need some, you know, some PR people to come on and make them, you know, as a bit <laughs> sexier. But um, yeah, and it's about making people aware of where it comes from, how long it's traveled. Like when you see how far avocados have come, they don't feel quite so healthy. Um, when you know the air miles, the carbon you know, input on getting that crop here, it's not not that super a food, really, when it comes down to it. And maybe that's part of it. Um, you know, talking about where it's come from and, and you know, looking at them in a different way. But yeah, we, all, I, I think all vegetables, there's no vegetable that's unhealthy. There's, you know, if you eat a good range of vegetables that we grow in this country, we grow so, so well, we have an amazing agricultural horticultural history it's through the roof. And if we look at that, I think that's better. But we don't, as I say, want to just kind of stop importing everything because then nations which rely on us are going to be in trouble so it's, it's a long-term view I think but yeah we need to just repackage things I'm on the turnip train here everyone like <laughs> get that packaged as a superfood <laughs> and it's really easy to grow so um alongside having the kinds of farms that Sarah has uh, that are sustainable and mixed and do lots of things there's obviously lots of new developments in farming I mean Casper do you look at vertical farming uh, hydroponics, aquaponics, all those things, do they come into your remit of how we can produce vegetables in cities, for instance, or, or whatever? I haven't worked on them directly. I mean, I've used hydroponics, I've used aeroponics as a, another tool in the lab uh, to, to grow plants for experiments, for example. Um, and they, they, they have a role uh, to play. Um, you know, local production doesn't have to be outdoors local production could be indoors and if you can try and go off grid as possible using using sun or, or other renewable resources to power that pretty pretty energy intensive indoor production um then all the better uh yeah 
So I'm afraid that I can, half past seven, the time's gone by so fast, I didn't realize. So just want to read out a note from Cassie. As for making beans sexy, talk to the US company Rancho Gordo. They sell dried heirloom beans and a beans club. And the waiting list to join is over a year. This is so great. How come you've got a waiting list for a year? So anyway, I think that is a very good moment. I'm sorry we haven't gone into insects. And we haven't talked about the supermarkets enough. And quite frankly, the subject of food, I can talk about it till, you know, kingdom come. Um, but you've all been absolutely wonderful panelists. And I think I'd just like to uh, say goodnight to you and ask you all to just give us all one, one thought about this really complex food system we live in. And, you know, we do, we do, we are living in a moment of change because so many things are coming at it climate wise, health wise, land use wise, etc. Sarah, let's start with you. What, what would you, what would your one thing be that people, people can do? Well, maybe not people can do, but well, maybe they can. I'd say empowering farmers is going to be the key to this because I think there is a misconception that this is all about small farms and it's not. There are large yeah. scale farms who are able to put diversity into it. And now we have cluster groups, which is a way of joining small scale farms, large scale farms, and kind of lending buyer power to it. The old fashioned pitch but notion of the small farm being the only one that's sustainable is just not true anymore. It can, it, but they do need to be empowered to have the kind of failure conversations that we've already talked about, which happen more and more regularly and the confidence that they can do it and the money behind them. Brilliant, I love that, buyer power. Fantastic. Very, very good new expression for, for everybody. That's really good. But the idea of the cluster farm is super interesting. Thank you. Helena, what do you want us all to do or think about? What I think about, I think, well, the thing that I've done in the past sort of part of my career that's taught me the most is gone to open. I'm going back to farmers here, actually, along with Sarah, it's go to farm open days. I have learned so much from going to the farms, speaking directly to the growers, understanding their issues and understanding what I can do as someone that lives down the road um have a conversation with anyone in the industry anyone not in the industry and yeah but go to farm open weekends if they're running near you because you learn a lot going to the source brilliant okay and Anna um well I think sometimes some of these big systems issues feel just you know insurmountable um but I think we have to, and, and lots and lots of things need to change that we um, don't, as individuals, have huge amounts of control over. But we do have power in every plate that we eat. And now we can eat a bit more bread ourselves and do ourselves a favour as well as the planet. Thank you. Casper, final word to you. Leading on from Anna, diversification. Diversity. Mm. You know, we have that power. We can try a new thing every week whether that's beans, whether it's pulses, whether it's your, your kale or sea kale, whatever you can find, try it, you might like it. Definitely. Well, you've all been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've learned lots and I've got a new expression, biopower, which will turn up everywhere now from now on. So thank you, all of you, for coming. Thank you to all the attendees and thank you for all the great questions. And please join us again on the, it's the 20, Wednesday, the 24th of May, when we're going to be doing our second event with Q, which is about trees and forests. And we've got some great speakers. I'm especially excited about having, welcoming back to 5 by 15, the wonderful Suzanne Simard and uh, other 
terrific speakers as well. And it, so thank you all very much indeed and good night. And have have a really good dinner and add something. Add some, I'm trying to think what I've got in the fridge, but of course I've eaten it all, but I'll have to think of something on the way home that I can get. So good night. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.